Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science. With beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The only thing better than grinding all night for your side hustle is your roommate picking you up with Mickey D's breakfast. The perfect pickup deal. There's a deal for every morning at McDonald's. Right now, taste breakfast perfection when you get a warm and savory sausage McMuffin with egg for just $2.50. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. If I had wings, I know it's I'd fly the river to the one I love. Oh, fare thee well, my honey, fare thee well. I had a man, strong and tall, he moved his body. Hello, my name is Dave Hanready and there will be no popcorn. Welcome to episode 10 of the No Encore Movies and Music Offshoot, the side project, if you will. I've got a bit of a chest infection because unlike, or rather much like the main character in this movie that we're going to discuss, I don't have a winter coat, but I do have a tremendous backup band with me in the studio today. My regular songwriting partner, David Higgins. Good to be back for the perfect winter movie. Yeah, it's, it it really does suit the tone, I think. Absolutely. Uh, it's inside Lou and Davis, of course, not to bury the lead. And we were like, who can we get? Who can we get onto this episode who might know a bit about this world? What jobbing, uh, roustabout, you know, like kind of... Uh, troubadour. Rascal, I would oh. say. Folk troubadour do we know in our lives. It is, of course, David Tapley of Tandem Felix. Hello. Thank you very much for having me, guys. You're very welcome. Dave's 3D coming at you live in 3D here. That's how it works, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, you got the call and you were straight in. Yes. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, big fan of this podcast. Big fan of the musical offshoot of the offshoot, now Encore as well. And uh, 
Yeah. You've been pushing for a while for us to do a Bob Dylan, whether it was like a four-hour documentary or whatever. Specifically the four-hour documentary. <laughs> this is our Dylan episode. This is the Dylan episode. Okay. For now. For now. For now. It's our Dylan episode. So we're going to talk about lots of things. And I guess you can give us some kind of pointers as to whether this film has any accuracy or inaccuracies and what and whatnot. But of course, sure. as is tradition, in our preamble, we discuss what we've been watching. And all three of us have seen a motion picture over the previous weekend of this recording on its first weekend of general release. It's a limited release. It'll be on Netflix very soon. It is, of course, the Irishman. We had a we had a big day on Sunday. Big day. We went to see the Irishman at midday. Yeah, it was the that's the time you need to see it at though, because then you're guaranteed full <laughs> attention for the Irishman. Not that you know. I think it would have been difficult uh, to watch it later in the evening because I found it uh, very engrossing. Um, I thought it was fantastic, but definitely noon, early afternoon. Perfect time to see and it. And you've got some of your day left afterwards as well. Quite yeah, a lot of some it. of because it, it's two hundred and ten minute film with no intermission. Two hundred nine, in fact. Oh, I'm sorry. I apologise. I'm, I'm going by what, the, we had what a... the White House said. <laughs> like, like they had a they had a flash uh, image that said two hundred and ten minutes. So, I mean, there's many ways you could circumvent this experience if you're kind of nervous. Dave Higgins has one such ingenious way. Do you want to share what you did, how you did it, and what you did? Are you outing me here? I'm outing you, yeah. You're outing me. This is a very cool, very Lewin Davis move, I would say. <clears throat> oh my God. You're not going to go to prison. Like, did this. you watch the movie The Irishman? <laughs> Loose lips handwriting, however. Like, you're going to get me blacklisted from Don't like snitch, every yeah. cinema, any, every cinema in Dublin. I'm snitching, yeah. I brought in, <laughs> I wanted a coffee and I had a, a flask to bring a coffee and then I made it home and then I was like, oh, I've got some Baileys here. Put a little splash in, brought it into the cinema. No. I have read the rules of the cinema and I have not read the rule that you're not allowed to bring would you call that an Irish coffee? That's not an Irish coffee. It's a Bailey's coffee. A Bailey's coffee. I've never seen anything that says you can't bring in a Bailey's coffee. It is It is frowned upon to bring outside food and drink. Is it? It is. Because I walked into the Swan Cinema in Rathmines where I saw the film on Saturday at half two, slightly later than you find gentlemen, but I walked in with a bag of Manhattan popcorn in my teeth as I walked up the steps. And wow, that's that's blatant. That is, well, yeah, that's egregious. That's Marlowe from The Wire. Get me. Well, know? this is you were basically like, did you like stare down the poor usher <laughs> and be like, what are you going to do about it? No, I, I just <laughs> said, he was just like, fuck my life's not. This said, isn't worth it. <laughs> they said, so you can't do this, and I said, do you know who I am? And they said, oh, sorry, excuse me, right this way. To be fair, you did say that it was a it was a, a terrific move. It was fantastic. Um, you know, if more cinemas offered a hot, warm, alcoholic drink, maybe, you know, I would have purchased one there. But it was not on offer, so I had to bring my own. Okay, that's fair enough. I uh, made good with a box of popcorn. As normal, you know. I mean, if we're going to out people without your 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 illicit packet of Maltesers hidden, have you ever seen his move? He hides <laughs> sweets to put on his popcorn in his glasses case. Sometimes you make sorry, you're making me sound like an old pedophile now, <laughs> which is not good, and I'm not, by the way. Uh, actually, to be fair, I you've re, you've refreshed my memory here. I'm pretty sure I did have a bag of minstrels that I didn't use. Didn't yeah. even need them. The movie was so good. The movie was uh, salty, as, as was the popcorn. There is will it, be no minstrels. Is it good, lads? Is it a good film? I loved it. Yeah. It gets five popcorns for me, I think. Um, did not feel like a three-hour film. I've definitely seen shorter films that have felt... Three hours, 30, of course. Yes. 29. But I 
Uh, yeah, I've seen a lot shorter films that have felt a lot longer. Yeah, that that I will agree with that absolutely. I didn't feel like it was three and a half hours long. Uh, three out of five for me, though. I think going into this film, your relationship with Scorsese will kind of depend on how you feel about it. I was fairly cold on the movie for quite some time. I got a bit hyped towards the last few weeks because I was like, cool, it's coming, you know, and whatever. Uh, I think it's very well done. I think some of the performances are pretty terrific. Some of them are less terrific. Generally, I just didn't care about any of it. I didn't care about any of the characters. I didn't care about the subject matter. And I do think that in the weeks to come, I will I will turn on this movie. You'll turn? I I'm, think so, yeah. I'm... I've, I'm feeling that I'm going to have the you <laughs> once upon a time in America relationship with this film. Once like I'm already Hollywood. like oh, sorry, once upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of already like yeah, I'll, I will go and I will spend another three and a half hours in the cinema. You're watching joking? This film. Yeah, and I don't tend to revisit movies in the cinema. I will never watch this film again ever. Um, I really, really liked it, and like I'm not a huge Scorsese fan. Like I was when I was younger, more so just the. Goodfellas Casino and then I've kind of you know my love for them has softened over the years but this was just um, something different it was um, it was hilarious it was basically like you know to, to use as you know uh, a scene from Casino it was like kind of like Scorsese taking the baseball bat to the idea of gangster movies and making something like really really sad uh, and melancholic and I'm kind of a sucker. I know I never cry at movies as we've talked about. Infamous, but yeah. If you if you put people who are aging and I think bringing back Pesci and seeing Pesci old, um, the callbacks to his like his previous work and like reimagining them, um, like basically breaking the myth. Like people have talked about, like it opens with like a long tracking shot, like similar to the Copacabana scene in, in Goodfellas. But like, there's also like references to the kind of way that gangsters were romanticized in Goodfellas but like you know like the way they cut the garlic um in this there's like you know they have a a similar kind of ceremony with with bread and wine and you know the way that progresses over the movie like basically destroyed me by the end of it like particularly just Pesci um I think Pesci was the highlight I found De Niro very irritating and I'm normally on team Shouty Al Pacino but I just found him annoying in this I thought he was good. Like, he was very, very, very... Are you talking De Niro or Pacino? Pacino. Oh, Pacino, yeah. De Niro's Niro's fine, but I do think also his character is a cipher, and I know that's kind of the point. But when that's your focal point for three and a half hours, I just didn't really uh, engage with him on an empathetic level. I know what you're saying about the sadness and the melancholy and the idea of ripping it up and kind of, like, you know, making the ultimate point. I feel like that's been overstated by you right now, but also (laughs) by a lot of the critics. I feel like it's very much like, yeah, it's grand. I don't think he did anything different here wildly so it was nice to see him not glorify it too much but I do think there's a bit of that glorification I'm not a huge Scorsese guy I like you know latter day Scorsese more than I like the classics because uh, I'm weird that way I, I respect him as a, he's clearly a master craftsman I don't in any way question that I'm just not necessarily on his vibe a lot of the time and with this yeah I mean I just felt I was like we've seen this before you know it's just gangsters doing gangster things and like you know are you just Sarah because he came after the uh, Marvel Universe oh yeah totally yeah I'm I'm still not over that yeah I'm really upset that he how can you say those movies how can you say that Thor The Dark World is not cinema I mean like what, what, what more do you want Marty you know um, yeah look it's a good film I just didn't care I wish I did I mean everyone's having fun and that's great and Pesci was fantastic 
Stephen uh, Graham, like action Bronson. Yeah. Oh wow, that cameo. <laughs> what the hell? It like ripped me right out of the movie. I turned to you and I went, "Is that who I think it is?" <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize. I three hours and ten minutes into the film, I had to have someone turn to me and say, "That's action Bronson." And I was like, "Oh, the guy from the pizza thing." Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, I think it's fine. Tapley, why did you love it? I did. I did on on the uh, topic of cameos. I did almost jump out of my seat when I saw um, Silvio Dante portraying a Tony Bennett type figure at the uh, whatever that gala was for uh, Frank Sheeran when he was up on stage singing. I audibly went, "Oh my god!" <laughs> and yeah, loved it. It was basically like. Um, you know, Scorsese goes back to Pesci, De Niro, brings in Pacino for the first time, and then the rest of the cast is just like, oh yeah, you were in Boardwalk Empire, yeah, yeah. and you Spoilers. were in Vinyl, yeah. uh, you're in this movie. Artie Bucco's wife, and uh, also a couple of Wire heads in there as well. Well, you had Herc in the, Herc? what can only be described as the fat bastard makeup from <laughs> <Yeah>. Austin Powers <laughs> Gold member. Covered in Play-Doh. I think I said to you, yeah, where's the government of the retirement years? It was really <laughs> strange. But within that, I think um, Pacino goes big, too big in this movie. Like I, I agree with you, Dave. But um, he's so his big. scenes with Stephen Graham are absolutely fantastic. Stephen Graham was good, and I enjoyed. I read a thing that Stephen Graham did in interview recently. He was kind of saying how when he was younger, his dad would bring him to the video store, and you know he he brought home The Godfather and something else, and was like, "This is cinema," you know, like an education for his son. And then Stephen Graham saw those and was like, "One day, you know, like this is now what I want to do. I want to be an actor now." And I think he was able to be like talk to his dad now and be like look I'm in a fucking Scorsese movie and that's a nice thing uh, a lot of criticism about the Anna Paquin thing not much dialogue she herself has been like it's totally fine calm down that's the point you know yeah I didn't have I think it's a manufactured controversy huge issue with it I didn't have an issue with that I didn't have an issue with the CGI too much there was a couple moments of uncanny valley weirdness you mentioned the eyes Robert De Niro's Wayne Rooney pearl blues very glassy yeah but it was more so the colour than the, the CGI because even in his later life it's it's a weird it was a weird choice to do that because De Niro looks nothing like Frank Sheeran like the the Frank Sheeran was yeah I guess like real quick six foot we, four six foot five real like quick because we don't mass. we don't have a lot of time in this episode we we have a deadline so uh, there's I read a very lengthy article debunking this whole movie and saying that the book it's based on is complete fabrication and Frank Sheeran was a liar mm-hmm. I think that's fine because the whole movie is framed as Frank Sheeran basically towards the end of his life dictating what happened which is exactly what he did for the book. Yeah, which is, I, I don't have a and problem And if that's the it. in to talk about what Scorsese wants to talk about in that movie, I think that's perfectly fine. Fair enough. All right. Uh, three cannolis or whatever the fuck you want to go with out of five for me. <laughs> uh, five steel baseball bat beatings <laughs> to death in, in, in a remote woodland area for uh, like for Tapley. And uh, you going four? I'm, I'm four, yeah. Okay, but you're going to go see it again. I'll consider it. Madman. I mean, it's going to be on Netflix pretty soon, so. All right, okay. Uh, not on Netflix. Is Inside Lou and Davis. You went out and bought the Blu-ray. I did. I didn't. Where did I, again, like, hit Craig up on the expense account. <laughs> <laughs> Still haven't got my money back for that book about some kind of monster. Poor Craig. <laughs> He's very busy. All right, so you heard it at the start of the movie. You heard a uh, track off this movie, Inside Lou and Davis. I guess, for anyone who does not know, what is this film, David Higgins? This film is uh, about a fictional artist, um, folk artist, Lewin Davis, in the early 1960s in New York, uh, kind of playing the Gaslight Cafe scene, basically just before Dylan breaks. Like, this movie is, it ends with Dylan coming in and kind of taking over, but um, it's about someone who never makes it. Um, why he doesn't make it is something we'll get into. Is it down to 
just bad luck? Is it down to him himself? Um, this is, yeah. It's kind of based on, to an extent, the Coen brothers kind of came up with an idea of this movie. Uh, there was a, a folk musician of that time, Dave Van Ronk, and apparently the genesis of this movie is we want to see a movie where Dave Van Ronk gets punched out and that was kind of like the seed where the movie started. Can I ask you, Tapley? Yes. Dave Van Ronk, um, prior to watching this movie, does he mean anything to you? Yeah, Dave Van Ronk was um, influential to all of the people who came afterwards. Um, and he has some title that I can't remember now, the godfather of the Lurie side or some sort of lofty well, he, title. He like has, he, his book was called The Mayor of McDougal Street. Street. That's the one. Yeah, sorry, I didn't have that to hand. Um I was about looking for, to my notes there and I realised all I have is I hate potato head Marcus Mumford written in my notes and that's... I think he gets a pass. Good. I think he gets a pass for his work on this movie. I think Fare Thee Well, which we heard at the start, that is an absolutely stunning song and I wouldn't put him there in advance but I love the song yeah. and I love him on it. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, Dave Van Ronk is someone who I didn't know a huge amount about when I saw the film first when it came out. Um, I did know him from an anecdote where he he was the man who wrote the song The House of the Rising Sun and Bob Dylan um, approached him before the release of Dylan's first album saying I want to put your song I want to do a cover of your song and, and have it on my first record and Dave Van Ronk said well here's the thing Bobby I actually haven't released this song myself so if you could just hold put for six months or so and I just want to get my you know, it's like the salmon of knowledge or something. He's like, I want, I want first dibs at this song, and then you can have at it afterwards. And Dylan didn't listen and put it out on his first record. And uh, after months of Dave Van Ronk playing this song live, people would come up to him and say, "Oh, you're covering that Bob Dylan song off his first record." And he was fuming about this, and he said there was some great relief uh, a year or two later when the famous version by The Animals came out and then Dylan started to get the same thing when he would perform it saying oh you're just covering the uh, Animals Eric Burden song House of the Rising Sun so that was the kind of the anecdote I'd known Dave Van Ronk through when I saw the film the first time didn't really know much about him aside from that but having read a lot about him and the sort of man he was I find that basing a film off the concept of him getting beaten up outside the gaslight is it's a great place to start a film, but there is very little in this film that is Dave Van Ronk, except for an album title, an album cover, a male folk musician in 1961 and whatever, 1962. There's not really much Dave Van Ronk in this film, and we'll probably get into that. The, the, well, there was the criticism sort of, of the Coen brothers for depicting a scene that I think people who were part of that scene thought was actually a lot more open and warm and creative and supportive than perhaps their kind of gloomy version or vision rather of it because I mean you don't see a ton of uh, folk music you see some confined to the gaslight and you know you, like you do get like this is a musical where people sang live and were recorded live and I think acquit sure. themselves quite well in most cases and ultimately it's it's a bit of an oppressive film in a way. Even the color palette, Dave, is very kind of like um, like the lighting. I think is uh, it's quite stark, but also beautiful. It's a yeah. It's it's a major departure for for what Coen Brothers films kind of look like. Um, they traditionally work with Roger Deakins, who's the greatest 
doing it. The greatest has ever done it. Um, one Oscar to his name. One Oscar to his name. Well, he finally got one. Um, and he tends to be like very, very crisp when he works with them. Like, you know, his version of this movie was probably like would be something along the lines of like the color palette of um, um, Miller's Crossing, where it's like very autumnal. Um, but he didn't do it. Uh, they worked with uh, Bruno Delbonel, who's mostly kind of worked with Jean-Pierre Jeunet, did Amelie, uh, a very long engagement. And the approach that he took to it, um, and I don't know if he really kind of hit what he said he was trying to do, even though I think it looks incredible. Um, he kind of took Bob Dylan's freewheeling album cover as like uh, a template, used the, the, the colours there as his palette. But what is in the movie is this very, very, very washed out of colour. Um, everyone in it kind of borderline looks like a vampire. They're so pale. They look like they've jaundiced sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, yeah, maybe he was going for that low winter sun thing. But. Yeah, so he, he shot it. Apparently he likes to like really, really heavily manipulate um, images post. Like they shot it on film, but as they were converting it to digital he like really, really messed around with things. Honestly, it, it does looks, look beautiful. Like it, there's, there's it, it, it these, these like amazing turn the, the brightness and contrast up on my television. Or yeah, which I'm these prone to do. Amazing, like wells of like light that just like hit into the scenes. Um, and the yeah, the contrast levels are like pretty stark. Like it's bordering on black and white in, in some, particularly like the Gate of Horn scene. It's like essentially black and white, but. Um, yeah, it looks fantastic. There is an effect that's used, uh, much to my annoyance, this might be something that some uh, you guys might find aesthetically pleasing, but there is this sort of, like, glow. I don't know if this is an artifact of using tape, uh, sort of a, an acetate thing or whatever, but there is this weird... It's almost like a basic effect you can get on an Instagram filter, which at certain points in the film I found really... Uh, I don't know if jarring is the word, but I just it was just like a bad aesthetic choice. So like particularly when you're saying the Gate of Horn scene where uh, Bud Grossman or whatever is sitting across from him and there just seems to be like light emanating from him, which is just obviously some, I don't know, plug in or something they use in After Effects that I thought looked quite cheap compared to if they were going for this autumnal wooden suede sort of like the Dylan album cover or whatever. I don't know how much I enjoyed that. It definitely made me feel like I was watching a piece of digital footage as opposed to something that was done. You've both mentioned the scene there which comes kind of late in the movie, but I guess from an audio point of view, let's hear what kind of atmosphere is captured when Lou and Davis sits down with the aforementioned Bud Grossman. No long 
for an audition that turns out to be something of a failure and we'll kind of get to that and we'll get to Lewin's kind of prowess at some point I think in terms of aesthetic uh, it applies to the cast as well like the Coen brothers are obviously very famed for I, I assume that they have a rogues gallery and they have this I, I imagine them having this incredible scrapbook full of photos and headshots because they're they're clearly attracted to a certain kind of actor and they often like casting people and effectively putting them through the ringer uh, in darkly comical ways and like a lot of the time and doling out a lot of violence that can be alternate, uh, alternatively slapstick and quite surprisingly brutal at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, I think they're really into their faces. I, I think they're really into the, the specific faces of actors and what they can do and, and how they can contort. Uh, I'm a fan of the Coen brothers. Uh, I, I think that they've made some incredible contributions to the world of cinema uh, and they're masters of their own craft. With this one, your your cast is like Oscar Isaac in the title role. you got Kerry Mulligan, Justin Timberlake, Adam Driver, F. Murray Abraham, John Goodman. Garrett Hedlund is your kind of chief supports and it is very much a film that is dominated by Oscar Isaac he's in pretty much every scene and some characters come and go in a very kind of almost fable kind of way some characters are there and they kind of have their moment and they're never seen again like I, I, I could have taken more of some of them in some respects it's a short enough movie I mean it's clocking in like 105 minutes they pack a lot in I mean ostensibly the A to B of this is that Lewin as we said is a struggling folk singer uh, he's not a very likable guy uh, Oscar Isaac's performance I think is, is, is quite impressive and it was definitely like something of a breakout for him I mean obviously like you know he's much more of a marketable box office man off the back of the likes of Star Wars but he'd been kind of jobbing around he'd been in stuff like Drive and he popped up in like a Bourne offshoot movie and you know he's in, he's in more films than you might kind of realise sometimes and I, I think he's a terrific actor uh, how did you find him Tapley as a singer because he does his own stuff here um, the singing I found and guitar playing I guess well. his guitar playing is brilliant he um, I think he's been playing guitar since he was less than 10 years old um but his guitar playing is is brilliant and i think there's one thing that i'm maybe this is what i'm brought in here to do today but yeah the ac- <laughs> dissect the, the accuracy of his guitar playing i think is also very well done he, he does play like a folky from the early 1960s the singing however i had uh, at the time and even more so now have a massive stick in my craw about this um it's very Marcus Mumford, and I hate it. I like it's on paper. When it, I saw that it was coming out, it was the sort of film that I was like, maybe I'll actually buy this soundtrack on on vinyl or whatever because I love this era. I love all these songs. Oscar Isaac, he can probably do it. He can sing, but there are way too many trappings of like modern, uh, modern pop singers in it or whatever. For example. The word honey in Fare Thee Well, like, it sounds exactly like the way Marcus Mumford sings honey in every Mumford & Son song, and it made me want to poke my eyes out. Is that the version with Marcus Mumford, or the, the version he does on his own? Because I, I don't like the version he does on his own, because I feel like he's, like, putting way too much into it, and it's like yes. he's trying to... It's look at me hit this note, not necessarily note, but, like, look at me sustain uh, this word... Um, it's like infusing soul into it that just didn't feel right. That's a, I think that's kind of the reading of it that uh, yeah that I would have is that there's like it's almost uh, it's predicting the future or something. It's there's a, there's a style of singing that soulfulness or bluesiness that di- hasn't in 1961 doesn't exist yet or whatever. Um, if you listen to Dave Van Ronk or the Bob Dylan recordings at the Gaslight, all these guys still want to be Hank Williams or want to be the black singers from from American slave music or whatever. So they, 
at the time were singing with sort of a nasal drawl, not particularly appealing to a modern ear. And I feel like for this film, they definitely went down a wrong avenue. I don't know if it was intentionally to make it appealing to a modern crowd, um, but it was just one of the things that really kind of took me out of the time and place. Because everything else, I mean, you get people to dress the sets, you get people to um, costume designers to get incredibly in-depth on what were they wearing at the time that's get clothes from the era. But it's a song about music and I feel they really fall flat on uh, their musical direction or whatever. Even even uh, maybe it's something to do with getting an Englishman to be the musical director on this film uh, or on the soundtrack. Well, I mean, how um, much how much uh, input did Mumford have? Because T-Bone Burnett is credited with being the overall director of this with regards to music and choices. Yeah. T-Bone Burnett, I'm not really sure what his fingerprint is. Maybe he selected the songs. Maybe he, he was kind of brought in obviously he'd worked with them before on A Brother Without Thou and I mean the man basically pr- T-Bone Burnett yeah mm. um, <laughs> T-Bone basically kind of um, had worked with them again on The Big Lebowski like he'd picked a lot of the songs yeah, so sure. apparently when they wrote the script they sent it to him first um, in the script they said that there were a couple of songs that were in the script that would have been ones that Van Ronk would have played like Green Green Rocky Road sure. and I think Hang Me as well um, and yeah. then kind of T-Bone Burnett fleshed out the rest of it um he essentially they recorded the entire even though they, they performed on set like they recorded the rehearsals the, the entire rehearsals i think like in avatar studios um so it is his fingerprints i think more so than marcus mumford like marcus mumford was brought in um i think he basically begged T-Bone Burnett to, uh, he was like, I'll, I will make the tea kind of thing yeah, after yeah. like meeting uh, him and Carrie Mulligan. Well, this would have been, so this would have been around the time as well that he produced the sessions of the new Basement Tapes, which was a record that was put out uh, of unrecorded Bob Dylan songs from the late 60s. That uh, so Dylan did an album in '68 or '69 with the band in upstate New York that didn't come out till the '70s, but it was uh, basically in Dylan's kind of off period after the uh, supposed motorcycle crash, and they found a box of lyrics that the, they they never got around to recording, and I don't know if it was in tandem with like a, an anniversary of the record of the original recording sessions or whatever but they brought out this record and um marcus mumford gets his foot in the door there somehow and it's the exact same thing so there's i you know i don't know if it's like was a mission statement of this record to try and faithfully reproduce these songs as if bob dylan and the band had recorded them but whatever way they do them getting marcus mumford in there was it, it really falls short of the mark, I think, compared to some of the other songs in the record by uh, Jim James from My Morning Jacket, who would have been a far superior musical director or whatever the title that Mumford has on this uh, soundtrack, or even Taylor Goldsmith from the band Dolls. These are like Americana, alt-country guys who I love. Um, and yeah, I don't know how, I don't know who Marcus Mumford has 
pictures of that he can blackmail them with, but he shouldn't be anywhere near, the, near these projects. If I all. could go back to a point that you made a few minutes ago... He's it, got a potato head as well. Is this is this film guilty of uh, omission with regards to... I don't think there's a single black character in this movie, is there? Am I wrong? No. I mean, there's a guy mopping up the floor in I the mean, old folks' home. That's pretty much a ding on every Coen Brothers film. Sure, but in this one in particular, based on what Tappy was saying with regards to almost ignoring a huge part of uh, influence, I suppose... Now, granted, at the same time, of course, they're free to make whatever film they want to make, and I'm not accusing them of, any, of anything particularly sinister here. Mm-hmm. And uh, but, and also, like, Lewin's social circle, I mean, he doesn't have a lot of friends. I don't know how diverse his social circle is. It doesn't appear to be quite big in in any respect. But, I mean, is that something that you can that, that the film should have maybe worked harder to work on? Because I feel like they're less interested in... Um, I think they're more interested in hanging out in the great era of folk music than exploring it. I think it's more about this one man and his kind of weird, almost kind of mythical, you know, struggle. Um, yeah, I, in terms of black representation of the early 60s coffeehouse scene, I don't know if there was a lot of black musicians. I, I can't comment on that really, but um, I guess that's Hollywood they make these omissions all the time so yeah not, suge- yeah. Like, not that I'm suggesting that you're an authority on the entire history of this but uh, but I'm just curious because it's, it's, it's an aspect I've never actually considered before mm-hmm. uh, in my very much privileged white middle class uh, sixth viewing of this film I believe um, let's concentrate though on someone who Lewin does interact with the aforementioned Kerry Mulligan who is another singer in this movie and has had a relationship with him it didn't go well don't tell Jim obviously I should have had you wear double condoms. Well, we shouldn't have done it in the first place, but if you ever do it again, which is a favor to women everywhere, you should not. But if you do, you should be wearing condom on condom and then wrap it in electrical tape. You should just walk around always inside a great big condom because you are shit. Okay. You should not be in contact with any living thing being shit. Have you ever heard the expression, it takes two to tango? Fuck you. Well, I could say we should talk about this when you're less angry, but that would be... That'd be... When would that be? Fuck you! So Carrie Mulligan is uh, a presence in this movie. She gets to sing a couple of times. She gets to go through Lou and a lot. Um, they've had a relationship. He's previously uh, paid for an abortion for someone else and now going to do one for her. She's had an extramarital affair. She's the wife of Justin Timberlake's character. Timberlake is pretty much a, a lovable goofball in this movie for the brief period that he's in it. Lovely sweaters throughout. Yeah, he's well cast, actually, I would say. He's incredibly well cast. I think everyone's fairly well cast. I liked her in this quite a lot. Um, her also resembling an ex-girlfriend of mine is a really <laughs> tricky thing to go through while watching this movie. What do you think? She's wearing a very suspect wig. I wasn't sure. It's, it's I'm, very, very I'm extremely bad. At, it's very, uh, very jarring. I guess just because her hair is like so dark in it. Yeah, and I'm never Harry good Morgan at. Harry Mulligan is primarily like a short-haired blonde. Yeah, no, it's it's a wig. I'm rarely good at spotting wigs unless it's like Travolta or something. You know, <laughs> where I take it as as red. Uh, I wonder with this character, does she 100 percent despise Lewin Davis, or is there a case of fronting up there? I, mean, I, like, I think you can make the argument that actually she does love him, kind of. Yeah, no, she does, and she's. It's kind of that I'm angry at you because you're wasting. She, she clearly gets that there's a talent there that he has immense talent and that he's pissing it away. Um, I've kind of, I've, 
of the negatives of this film previously in, until this rewatch, her role has kind of been one of the main ones for me because she just kind of a lot of the times just comes across like, oh, there's one woman in this, where uh, primarily one woman in this film, and she's incredibly shrill. All she's there is to like dress down, be a bit of a blowhard to Lewin. But I think it's just definitely a lot. Yeah, it's justified, but there's a lot more nuance to her now in in on this rewatch, my fifth or possibly sixth, that <laughs> she might. She might be kind of as as much of a piece of shit as Lewin. Yeah, like, like there's again, it's a car- it's a film that's populated by mostly unlikable characters. I think for yeah. one reason or another, and yeah, her her actions are extremely questionable and arguably quite immature. But it's it's like you're dropping in on these people, like you're dropping in on their lives, and they're not living. They're living very irresponsible lives. Uh, it's it's difficult to draw a full read on her because if this was her film, obviously you'd, you'd find a lot more windows to kind of look through. Uh, I can understand the short shrift thing. I do think that she's quite a quite an interesting anchor on the movie, and I do like the relationship that's there, even though it is quite volatile. Uh, Higgs uh, noted, uh, like I guess vocal selection choice made by the directors aside, does Lewin Davis as a character have immense talent? This was something I was going to point out that <clears throat> I. Uh, as it as it is written in the film, I am not sure if he's actually supposed to be br- a brilliant uncut gem or whatever, um, or is he just supposed to be someone who has ideas of himself? Uh, there's a couple of things in this film as a, an actual scripted criticism or as a criticism of the script. There are things that I found quite confusing. One of them is is Lewin supposed to be a mastermind who's just making all the I don't know if I call them wrong decisions. I think I've written in my notes wrong in inverted commas. But um he's making all these sort of uh you know uh noble decisions, you know, refusing to when he does the audition for uh Bud Grossman, you see him uh just jamming away to himself singing the song Cocaine. And it's a nice breezy sort of impressive sounding song and then when he actually gets the chance to sing a song from me, he picks this really long, drawn-out murder ballad or whatever, and it's probably not the best audition song that, you know, I don't see a lot of money here, or whatever. Um, he doesn't want to compromise. He doesn't want... His, he, he, his thing, and he, he kind of... He lords it above... He thinks he's above a lot of people. Like, he thinks he's above Jim for writing, um, <clears throat> you know, Please Mr. Kennedy. Yeah. He thinks he's above... His, um, his essentially, Bill Grossman's like, do you want to be in uh, Peter, Paul and Mary? Yeah, and he's like... No, and he's like, no, that. won't do that. Yeah, he thinks he's above his two middle-class friends who put him up or whatever when he has... They have him over for dinner. Mus- and Moussaka. He, Musaka, yeah, yeah, they treat him like a surrogate son. I I always wondered if it was left unsaid because, like, of course, a big part of this movie, and it's it's dealt with quite well, I think, because it's not really hammered home too often, but it is there, and you can kind of miss it on it, like on a first or second watch. Uh, Lewin is effectively reeling from the suicide of his songwriting partner. Mm-hmm. That's where you know fairly well comes from, and you yeah. get these references. And Put Grossman even says. Um, I want to put you with other people and he's like oh I had a partner and Bud Grubman's like oh that makes a lot of sense and he's like I, my advice is you should get back with this guy and of course Lewin cannot do this um, but ultimately it's like there's a lot in that as well about the grief and not admitting and being in denial and perhaps blaming yourself or blaming him and I always wondered if the middle class older couple were his parents no he but his dad is in the movie no 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 not Lewin's parents oh but his dead songwriting partner right I don't think no, they are no because they're Gorfine and he's Mike Timlin, Timlin. Yeah, yeah. But, but they knew him because they reference him yeah um, I'm singing Mike's part and he's yeah like, fuck Mike's part they're just yeah. like bougie upper 
Upper East He'll Side. Like yeah, cool musician. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like they're, they're the kind of people who throw dinner parties to invite kind of all the cool people they know just so they can be like, look at all the people who are here that we know. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah. But they're harmless as well. Uh, and again, great Musaka. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they also have a cat uh, that Lewin uh, cat sits, I guess, briefly and then loses. And then that's a, a, a crux of this movie. There is a cat in this movie and there's a lot of, you know, is Lewin actually the cat? Is the cat a metaphor? Is the cat a bit Mike? Is the cat a bit this? Is the cat a bit that? He goes in this kind of odyssey, like, you know, he, he comes across different people. He tries to rediscover the cat. He thinks he does. And then it turns out it's a different one. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the cat metaphor fun or is it annoying? I think it's good. Um, the the Coens originally said they were like oh someone asked them like what well, what's the cat about and you know in classic Coens self deprecating they were like oh well you know we wrote this movie and we kind of liked being in this era but we didn't really have a plot so we just put the cat in um <laughs> there's clearly a lot more to it um they um you know it is explicitly said in the movie Lewin is the cat mm-hmm. um the cat starts off somewhere goes on a journey ends up back up where it did just much like Lewin does um the cat's name Ulysses is another reference um I mean this is probably the first time I'm going to say this but can I read a passage <laughs> from the Odyssey sure why not yeah go on um, I was, this, I was, I was the, looking forward this, to the day that we became that kind of podcast <laughs> um so basically, this is about Ulysses or Odysseus. In it, it's a passage that says, um, For two are the gates of shadowy dreams, and one is fashioned of horn and one of ivory. Those dreams that pass through the gate, sawn ivory, deceive men, bringing words that find no fulfillment. But those that come forth through the gate of polished horn bring true issues to pass when any mortal sees them. So basically... Lewin goes to the Gate of Horn. He goes to play to good Bud Grossman. Um, it's an audition. He fails it. This is where, you know, good men go through. They pass through. Lewin doesn't pass through. Lewin is the cat. There you go. The cat's named Ulysses. <laughs> <laughs> Do the math. There's a great Collins anecdote as well about Miller's Crossing and how Gabriel Byrne apparently came to them on set one day and asked about his hat. And he was like, "What's the story with the what's the metal, what, what's the symbolism of the hat? Like, it's it's important, right?" And they were like, "Yeah, what do you mean?" And he's like, "The hat, like, it means something, right?" And one of them was like, "Yeah, it does. It is important. You're right." And then like walked away and like mm. obviously annoyed him further by wow. doing this. They're they're clearly really good at doing that kind of stuff. Um, I guess. Can I also just point out that the cat, there is a cat on the cover of Inside Dave Van Ronk. But there is not. But there is no cat on the cover of Inside Lewin Davis. Oh wow, that's like you're opening up a Reddit subthread mm-hmm. here, whatever the fuck they call them. Subreddit, I believe. Um, I guess yeah. On that kind of perilous journey, he encounters a bunch of counter or encounters a bunch of characters. And I mean, like, like for Lewin, it's often like you know, like whose couch is he staying on that night? He doesn't yeah. have a winter coat. He's 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 really irresponsible. Um, he takes a job that involves driving across uh, America at one point, and he's accompanied by Garrett Headland in one of his best roles because he doesn't say a word. <laughs> Playing Johnny Five. Johnny Five. Not to be. Confused with the uh, short circuit character. Yeah. He eventually says some words which are kind of garbled poetry, and it's yes. hard, hard to know what he really kind of stands for. But he's also he's the is, it, is that supposed to be a comment on the fact that he plays Dean Moriarty in On the Road? Perhaps. Yeah. Who okay. knows? Ahead of their time, or did that come out before this? It came out before. I never went near it. Uh, John I. Goodman, Cohen's regular, plays a character by the name of Roland Turner, and this is an all-time vile character, isn't it? Well, John Goodman in every Coen Brothers movie is a monster. (laughs) 
Like every single one. Think of uh, Walter and Big Lebowski, like they, they base it on. Like John Milius, his character, no brother out there, is supposed to be the Cyclops from the Odyssey. Barton Fink. Barton Fink. And <laughs> he, he he's basically Satan, the yeah. Satan in yeah. that movie. So in this movie, he's a kind of old jazz cat who's also a heroin addict, which we discover when he's found on the floor of a restroom convulsing. Uh, he's mostly confined to the backseat of a car from which he effectively lectures and taunts Lewin. Pokes him with his cane. Which is just horrific to watch, but uh, we'll give you a taste of what that sounds like. What? What's the N stand for? Lou Ann Davis. Lewin. Lewin. L-L-E-W-Y-N. It's Welsh. Well, it would have to be something stupid fucking name like that. You don't look Welsh. My mother was a terrible. Yeah, this would interest you. Johnny and I were in Seattle playing the high spot. Remember this, Johnny? And I became indisposed after eating a toasted cheese sandwich and found myself purging from every orifice, one of them like a fire hose. I said to the manager, What do you call that thing I just ate? He said, Welsh rarebit. I said, Okay. Does everything from Wales make you shit yourself or just this piece of toast? He said, Holy Jesus, what is that thing? Uh, it's, uh, it's my cat. Well, it's not my cat. Grown it's... man with a cat. Is that part of your act? No. What'd you say you played? Folk songs. Folk songs. I thought you said you were a musician. Folk singer with a cat. You queer? So a horrific story from John Goodman there. Horrific. Um, I have to say... Green Book 2 was really, really good. (laughs) (laughs) There is something that this uh, driving scene reminded me of, and this would be the second book quoted in this uh, discussion, but I read a book a while ago called But Beautiful by Jeff Dyer, which is all about jazz. If you have not read it, please do, because it's brilliant. And it is a book of short stories about different real jazz musicians um, although I believe the stories themselves are are fictitious, or at least are founded on nothing more than sort of, sort of uh, hearsay, and um, the uh, uh, reading of the book that I had heard was that the the book is supposed to represent a jazz song. So you've got different jazz musicians portrayed and 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 stories told about them uh, in each chapter, but every other chapter is a story about um, what's his name? Duke Ellington and his driver driving him from venue to venue uh, across the country and the kind of the sort of mundane uh, things that happen to them while they're driving the long straight roads of the United States. And basically the book is supposed to be a jazz song uh, in its structure and in its elemental parts or whatever. So this recurring story of the long straight road that this car drives down is like the backbeat of the song and the drummer playing this steady sort of rhythm and then as uh, the next chapter comes in talking about Charlie Parker that's a solo from Charlie Parker there and then when the next chapter comes in on Chet Baker or whatever that's the trumpet solo of the song I did feel like this film if if unintentionally but the the song does have the the film should i say the structure of the film does have similarities similarities to this in that it has a looping sort of mechanism where the the first scene in the film is repeated at the end 
like a folk song where you sing the first verse, you go somewhere else, a couple of choruses, and then you come back and sing the first verse again instead of the the third verse or whatever. Um, I don't know if I'm reading too much into that, but I did like that sort of structural... Well, the loop uh, aspect of it, the way it ends, kind of with a slight, a slight alteration on the beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, at which point Bob Dylan shows up this time, and I think it's a very, very key thing that Lewin is outside missing this. He's missing the explosion, this huge moment, yep. and someone kind of taking a crown that perhaps he thinks should be his and ultimately would probably benefit from being in that room at that point, but he's yes. not. He's outside getting the shit kicked out of him. Um, and, of course, he says au revoir to the guy, uh, which closes the movie, which I think is more of a thing of, like, you know, until we meet again or something. So there yeah. is an element of moving forward and a bit of hope. I mean, like, this is a bleak film. I remember once saying on Twitter that, like, I could watch this film over and over again. I remember someone challenging that and just being like, it's so grim. Um, I don't think it's... It's certainly not the most upbeat thing of all time but I do I find those cracks of light Cohen style you know I find like a lot that there's, there's something kind of beautiful and very human about it you know there's an empathy there which I, I'm always attracted to uh, with the loop aspect of it I mean like I've kind of driven my own head crazy by being like is Lewin in some kind of weird groundhog day until mm. he gets mm-hmm. it right and I don't think that is what they're going for but I think you can totally apply it yeah like as you said you see hope in the au revoir uh, comment I see you know, until we meet again, is like destined to repeat. I'm this going to do this again and again and again. Um, so you, you see it as like he's doomed. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I can. The Cohens, they are cynical men. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I said this to you, Hanradi, uh, off air last week, but my friend Ushin Murphy, who used to be the um, film editor of Totally Dublin, interviewed Oscar Isaac uh, in his promotional tour for this film. And one of the questions he asked him about the structure of the film is that the song Hang Me um, is at the start and at the end of the film and that the structural path of the film resembles a noose. And he posed that to him and Oscar Isaac could seem to be the first time he'd ever heard that theory or whatever. But I do like that aspect of it as well, that it does symbolise a sort of a a rope wrapping around itself yeah I should say that is a terrific interview by the way I think that was really good back and forth and I'd encourage anyone to go and read that one Totally Dublin Oscar Isaac Ocean Murphy great song as well let's have a quick listen to that one Hang me oh hang me I'll be dead and gone Hang me oh hang me I'll be dead and gone I wouldn't mind the hanging But the laying in the graves So long, poor boy been So that's the one song from him that you're particularly high on, I guess? Uh, no, not particularly. Okay. Um, I, was, I, I, was, I was hoping there, man. I was like... I don't, know if there's, <laughs> I don't know if there's any musical point in this film that I enjoyed even a percentage of how much I enjoyed the musical bit in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Interesting. Okay, well, I guess, I mean, like, we're kind of running out of time, but I will say this. Uh, I Yeah, you mentioned earlier on you kind of flirted that you are brought in for some degree of accuracy, but of course, always more than that. But I am mm. curious. I mean, from an accuracy point of view, and even, like, as a musician, one who, you know, works and grafts and recently put out an album of your own and all that kind of stuff, I mean, like, I know that you're not quite into a lot of it that way that you just said but is this a fundamental misread do they get some stuff right did you feel did you see yourself on the screen at all did you feel any kind of identification i definitely have had that moment in uh family gatherings where the guitar is thrust upon me <laughs> um which is always something that uh 
yeah, like he says, whatever, is it, this is the sort of thing that you think I'm being polite, but I'm just going to keep on saying no until it's too late or whatever. And he ends up singing and exploding at the uh, matriarch of the house for singing his um, late partner's harmony line or whatever, which is also something that happens all the time when you sing at a party if it gets drunk enough. Um, there are accuracies in that he is sort of a misanthropic, nihilistic, sort of self-destructive character and that maybe the reasons that he turns down these opportunities or the reasons that he goes to the gaslight and says, this is crap. or You know, he, every every act he sees in the gaslight, he hates. If he doesn't say it, he says it about the woman playing the auto harp. He says it about... Uh, in a manner of words about the guy singing the L triangle or whatever. Yeah, like the jumpers or like the sweaters or whatever he says. Um, it does seem to me that it is a film made in a time of massive neoliberalism in the United States, in Hollywood, that we look at a character like Lewin Davis. I keep going to say Llewellyn Davis, which is what I called it at the time before I... It's yeah, fair because they have a character called Llewellyn Moss in No Country for All Men and I did it all the time when it came <laughs> out. And Llewellyn Moss. But um, he is, a, is ostensibly a failure in terms of financial and career goals and the way it would appear that he is a success is that he never does anything he doesn't want to do. But the decisions he makes in the film are all bad. You know, he turns down the opportunity to get royalties on the Please Mr. Kennedy track that they record in the studio, which is probably the best song in the film. And becomes a hit, of course. Um, and becomes a hit and, it's, you know, he sells that potential for royalties for $200 or whatever. Now, he does that because he has to pay for um, Carrie Mulligan's character's abortion or whatever. So he was kind of, his, his hands were tied in that situation. But he... You know, he 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 seems like a person who actually doesn't really love music that much. He's, he's just good at it. Is he? Yeah, I don't know if he is that good at it. I don't think he's a great, but I think he is good. I would agree that there is an element of talent being pissed up the wall and kind of not really focusing properly on it. And if he did, or even if he took that kind of, you know, Peter Paul and Mary thing, there could be a career there, but he's too cynical. He is, he is way too cynical. He's outright rude to people at points where, you know, that, that scene where he refuses to to finish the song at at, at the the dinner party um oh, he throws a fucking tantrum he throws a tantrum and the the my the thing that I will deduct points on this film for in my final score or whatever um note how I give film scores but whenever I'm on no encore I'll never write an album out of 10 you're a contradiction Dave. um walking contradiction sitting contradiction in this case <laughs> but he um i don't know if you're supposed to like him for those decisions that he makes. And I don't mind that. I don't mind not understanding whether I'm supposed to like or dislike a character. But the thing that I find, um, the thing that I will dock points for or whatever, is that I don't know if the Coens really know. I th- I, I think the things that he does that are bad and mean and rude and, and, and stupid or whatever, I don't know if there's a real viewpoint that the audience are supposed to have if it's empathy or if it's like the opposite you know if you're supposed to think that he is a bad man for doing these things um 
that can be seen as a good thing. I don't know if the the confusion of the film is mirrors the confusion that he has in his place in music or or his career, or whatever, not knowing where he's going. But that's something that I found quite hard to grasp onto, and I didn't dislike him or like him. I just didn't really. The character didn't really resonate with me. I got a bit of a Homer Simpson thing where I ultimately wanted him to be okay. And I'd be curious to see if his immaturity would lessen with age. Ultimately, he's a hard sell. He is a prick. But I want to believe that deep down he can get it right. Are the Coens making a condemnation commentary here? Yeah. Um, I kind of think that they are. Like, it, An interesting thing about the, the Coens movies is he always kind of watched them to see what of them is in the movie like they are very very removed they keep everyone at a distance like i mentioned that they're cynical there's an argument that they actually have disdain for a lot of their characters um and you know just to to go to a serious man was a movie that everyone kind of thought that they were actually going to start revealing something about themselves and they made it even more opaque and kind of pushed the audience further away i think there's a lot of them in here and certainly maybe how they feel about um, the kind of the gatekeepers of culture, particularly like studios, like you mentioned, Hollywood movie a lot. Um, mm-hmm. This movie was pretty much entirely financed by France, like uh, Studio Canal. Like they, they've kind of have to go outside of the system. Even um, when they release movies, they're not hugely successful in America. They're like better, well received in abroad. And I kind of feel like there's a lot of figures in this, like particularly your Bud Grossman, a stand-in for Albert Grossman, who. I think I think Lewin is good. I think the the read on this that he he does have something special and that something not fully down to him has been missed by other people uh, and the people um of power in this movie are cynical um like Grossman's I don't see a lot of money here comment um the owner of the gaslight is like has no interest like he's he's a pretty gross human he's like he's funny he's a good yeah, yeah. A, a good character but like he has no interest in anything that's on stage, he's only worried about, I'm getting bums on seats, I'm getting people in. Yes. Um, even Lewin's manager is kind of portrayed as like this guy who's completely clueless, yeah. doesn't know what he's doing, uh, his office is a mess. I kind of feel like they're they're, they're making a point um, about it in general, like using Lewin, if you will, like as a cipher too, for themselves, um, which I kind of, it's interesting because they don't tend to reveal their hand or reveal anything personal about themselves and um, the kind of cynicism in this movie feels like it's them saying something. There is an interesting aspect of it which is that Lewin has a or had a partner who died by suicide and potentially this could be a sort of a in the way the Barton Fink or whatever was like a man holed up in a room in a hotel or whatever and it's kind of it was about them writing Miller's Crossing I believe um, perhaps it is a comment on what would happen if one of the if Joel or Ethan Cohn died or was not able to work anymore or whatever it would would the would the the brother left behind be able to do what they do alone or whatever and I guess judging by Lewin Davis in this film maybe the answer is no because they're going to try it next year they've split oh really yeah okay until then, until then, I will say that was uh, that was some tremendous critical commentary on a movie that uh, a, bit, a bit more of a critical discussion than I was anticipating. But I'm glad it wasn't just a love in. I do love this movie though for all of its flaws. So do I. I think just it's for great. the record. Yeah, no, no, I, I I love it a lot. And as a matter of fact, it's easily in my top three Coen Brothers movies. 
alongside uh, drum roll please Miller's Crossing and No Country for Old Men they'd be my top three cones in no order um, I would say Barton Fink I would say No Country and Big Lebowski because I fucking hate the Eagles <laughs> I hate the Eagles too <laughs> um, me three yeah. I will go this if, I, if I'm going outside of this this is my number one um, a serious man no Country, Big Lebowski. I kind of want to make a, a spot for the man who wasn't there, but it kind of it's kind of hard to omit No Country and Big Lebowski. All right. Okay, so I think the takeaway here is watch No Country for Old Men again if you haven't seen it for some time. Uh, do we have time for a quiz? We'll do a quick one. Um, so I mentioned uh, Coen Brothers movies don't tend to do great. In, well, they do okay in the US. Like, they never lose money. Well, they occasionally lose money. He's <laughs> <laughs> like a Coen Brothers character right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lose a bit of money <laughs> they make more money in the global box office abroad um, than they tend to do Ed in Fong. the US yeah. so um, a couple of times they've written scripts that they have not directed so I'm going to see if you, if you do you want to actually take a guess what, what how well see, this no, movie I did know, I know how well this movie did yeah oh god like I mean what, do, we, do we have a budget Lou and Davis uh, the budget was um, I think it was 11 million I'd be surprised if he even made that back. 29. 18. Tapley wins. Globally, 32. Oh, that's pretty good. The 13 in America, again, like, did great in Europe. Um, it's pretty good for what it is, no? Um, it's a niche film. Yeah, it's one of their... I actually missed it in the cinema, which I really regret doing. Okay, so they've written a couple of, of movies. Suburbicon. Ugh. So they, they wrote this. George Clooney directed it. Oscar Isaac is also in it. You have Matt Damon, Julianne Moore... Do you want to go higher or lower? Than Lewin Davis. Yeah. It made more money than, than Lewin Davis, yeah? Less. Tapley wins again. Whew. Um, It only made... That's the name of your second album, by the way. 12, <laughs> 12 million globally on a $25 million. I also, mix, <laughs> I also immediately mix it up with downsizing for some reason. Gambit. The, what? Oh, they wrote Gambit, yeah. They did. Colin Firth and they, Cameron Diaz. The much, the much loved uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did Gambit make less money than Lewin Davis? Is that what you're telling me? Yes. I agree. You're both right. Uh, it did absolutely terribly. <laughs> um, unbroken. So they wrote this script. Angelina Jolie directed it. They wrote that? Yeah. Jesus uh, Jack O'Connell, I believe, or Donald Gleeson. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, uh, the year that that was coming out, I had to interview a television personality and ask them about their year. And I was like, what's, you know, film of the year, album of the year, blah, 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 blah. And this is someone who would work to some degree with regards to films. And I was like, uh, what's your film of the year? And she said it was Fury with Brad Pitt. And then she said, no, no, actually, no, no, Unbroken, the Angelina Jolie one. And I went, oh, cool. I was like, I actually haven't seen it yet. It's really good, is it? And she said, oh, I haven't seen it. <laughs> and I won't say who that person is. Um, Unbroken made less money, I would say, than, than Lewin Davis. Yeah, I'd say Unbroken made a tight 25 million. More money. Tapley again. Oh, he's Oof. good. World War Two. Here any of these. Books. Made an insane amount of money. One hundred sixty-one million. Fucking hell. Okay. On a sixty-five million. Good lord. Uh, last, last quick one. Bridge of Spies. They wrote that. I still haven't seen it. I know you're mad at me for not seeing it. I uh, know we were talking winter movies. I don't know if you've seen mm, Bridge of Spies. No. Bridge of Spies is a great winter movie. Winter for me means John le Carre, and this is like Cohen's getting there. My le prediction Carre is on. that Bridge of Spies made a nice fifty-seven million dollars. Yeah, more than Lewin Davis. More than Davis, of course. It made 165. Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, come on. Okay, sorry. Oh, okay. okay. Um, 
that, that do you want to hazard a guess well one last one I, w- I won't go to their entire yeah, filmography yeah, go on, go on. Um, what is their highest grossing film ever no country ooh uh, god Jesus Christ that's a really tough one um, uh, Fargo no it wouldn't be um, not Big Lebowski either Intolerable Cruelty both of you are incorrect oh. True Grit oh, Oscar right. True Grit okay. yeah, yeah. never saw it um, and their lowest Lowest, like, does Blood Simple count? Because it's an indie that was Blood Simple counts, but it's not Blood Simple. Is what is what I'm getting from you here? I'm going to say Blood Simple. I'm going to say, oh god, oh, the man who wasn't there. It's Blood Simple. Ah, for fuck's sake! <laughs> was an easy one. Gave you well, that was a trick, you know. What, what can you do? David Tapley, thank you so much. Thank you for having we me, David. We definitely have you back on the show for sure. Great. When we and, go uh, to Dylan again, maybe. Yeah, no direction home, <laughs> all six hours, two DVDs. I mean, it would not be wasted on me, though. What do you mean? I don't know Dylan enough, and I'm intimidated by the back out. I'm, intre- I'm interested by doing I'm Not There. I'm Not There would be great. Oh, the, the actor movie? Yeah. Well, Todd Haynes is incredible. So. Okay. I'll consider that. But that's not what we're doing next, is it, David Higgins? No, it's not. We're, uh, again, we embraced winter today, and we will be embracing the festive festive season on our next episode that's correct because it sounds a bit like this what is this it's someplace new jack look out Whoa. what's this what's this there's color everywhere what's this there's white things in the air what's this i can't believe my eyes i must be dreaming wake up jack this is <laughs> what is this haven't you heard of peace on earth and goodwill toward men? <laughs> it's the nightmare before Christmas. Not a lot of music related. Not a lot of Christmas musicals, really. So this will do. It's, it's great. time. Yeah, we're going. We're going to try and get to that live show, but there's no promises there. Yeah. So we'll see. In the meantime, to play us out, we'll have a bit of "Please, Mr. Kennedy," I think, which is the most upbeat song in a film that isn't Uh-oh. upbeat. <laughs> Uh, Adam Driver steals the movie absolutely steals I know I did read today that when this film was premiered in Cannes that was the only song that got a round of applause (laughs) and it was ineligible for the Oscar because it's actually partly taken from another song called Please Mr. Kennedy okay fair enough Uh, this has been fun and this song is fun my name is Dave Hanready this has been a popcorn there being a popcorn and please Mr. Kennedy don't shoot me into outer space Second, please. Please, Mr. Kennedy. Oh, oh. I don't want to go. Don't show me in the outer space. Oh, please. please, Mr. Kennedy. Oh, oh. I don't want to go. Don't show me in the outer space. I sweat when they stuff me in the pressure suits. Rubble, helmet, dashboard, and boots. Nowhere a bit in gravity. Space. I need to breathe. Don't need to be a space. Reading me loud and clear Roll, oh, please, Mr. Kennedy If you make her a widow, who will play catch out in the back with our kid? Don't please, Mr. Kennedy. I don't wanna go. Don't show me into outer 
This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. The been thinking about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.